want to encourage you this morning to turn to another well-known passage of Scripture. Last week we thought about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace of blazing fire. And this morning we're going to look at the account of David and his encounter with Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So turn to 1 Samuel 17, and I'd like to read for you basically the entire account, beginning in verse 1 and reading all the way down through verse 54. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not a Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for forty days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousands and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words, and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? 
Surely he is coming to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed them with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it, and it struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, 
and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron, and the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sharim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. Father, it's a a familiar story to us, and yet I pray that you would speak to us afresh this morning and perhaps open our eyes to see things that we might not have noticed before that we've long overlooked. Speak to us today for your praise and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I say, this is a a well-known story. Uh, Even in popular culture, it's a well-known story. And as you have seen, I'm sure in popular culture, this story of David and Goliath is usually viewed as a parable of hope for the little guy. So when Ohio University plays Ohio State, it's David and Goliath, right? And the announcers say that if the Bobcats can just display the spunk of Jesse's youngest son, then they might be able to topple the giant. That's the way our culture thinks of David and Goliath. It's simply a parable of hope for the little man. And the same thing is true as we think about the business world when Walmart moves in right next door to the mom and pop store or in international politics when a little backwater country is facing off against a world superpower or even in playground scuffles, right? There's the runt and there's the bully and everyone loves to cheer for David over against Goliath. We see all sorts of David versus Goliath situations in the world and so the line of reasoning goes, this story gives us hope for the little guy, especially if he's feisty. But I want to remind you that to apply this story in that way is to completely miss the point. David did not topple Goliath by means of his spunk or his feistiness. He toppled him, verse 45, in the name of the Lord of hosts. And David very emphatically tells us he did not fight to make us admire or root for the little guy. He fought, verse 46, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Because God and not the little guy is the real victor in this battle. This is a story about the size of God, not the size of David and not the size of Goliath. Remember that well every time you read this story. This is a story about the size of God, not of David or of Goliath. And this big God fought for little David, not because of David's feist, but because of David's faith. And the same will be true for you and for me. And that's a lesson that's often completely lost in the pop culture understanding of David versus Goliath. The real lesson here is that with God, we will do valiantly. Not that with courage and moxie, the little guy can put the bully in his place. No, with God, we can do valiantly, whether we are large or small. 
Here's David's explanation of that day's events, verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. This is a story about the size of God, not the size of David's courage. This is a story about what God can do, not what the little guy can do. Never forget that. So, picking up on this God-oriented view of this story, in Christian circles, we often apply David and Goliath along these lines. What are the giants in your life? What is it that seems too big for you to overcome? Is there a bill that's too large to pay? Is there a person who is too difficult for you to deal with? Is there a disease that's too advanced for you to overcome? Well, think of David and Goliath. With God, you can do valiantly. With God, you can defeat the giants in your life. Now, those things are true, and they make a little better application of this story. But if we stop there, we still miss the point, I think. There is more here, much more here, than just an encouragement that God can overcome our personal difficulties. That God can knock down our personal giants. There's much more here than that. In fact, this isn't really about personal giants at all. And I want to show you that this morning under three headings. This is a story about God. And so I'm going to give you three headings this morning about what this story says concerning God. And all three of those headings, I think, can be summarized. We'll look at multiple verses, but all three of the headings that we need to see this morning can be summarized from verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. That's the key verse in this passage. Those are the key words. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. And from those words of David and the rest of the story, as I said, I want to make three simple points. The first is that you notice that this battle was really all about the name and the glory of God. This battle is not about David and it's not about Goliath and it's not about any kind of personal issues that anyone may have had. This is about the name and the glory of God. Listen to David again in verse 45. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. I think you can hear in those, those uh, words, David is not fighting for his own rights or his own honor. He was not fighting, first of all, to protect his own crops from the Philistines or to defend his own family. He's not fighting, first of all, for the honor of his homeland. All those things are honorable and important and maybe worth fighting for. But just notice here that this fight for David is not personal. The reason his blood boiled that day was not because of the insults that Goliath hurled at David in verses 43 and 44. No. Goliath did insult David, but that's not why David was fighting. What does David say in verse 45? I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. Why is David so indignant? Why is he ready to slice this man's head off? Not for any personal reasons, not even for purely patriotic reasons, but because Goliath, verse 45, had the audacity to taunt the armies of the living God, and in so doing, to taunt God himself. 
I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. That's why David's so upset. That's why he's righteously indignant. That's why he's approaching the battle lines as he is. That's been David's constant theme in this chapter as we've watched his blood pressure rise. You could hear it in David's voice that he was becoming more and more righteously angry. And we saw it, first of all, in verse 26. David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And then he says it again in verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And now we've seen it again in verse 45 as he approaches Goliath at the battle lines. I come to you in the name of the Lord whose armies and who himself you have taunted. This battle for David was about God's name who is being ridiculed and taunted by this Goliath. This is about the name and the glory of God. David will not sit idly by while this uncircumcised Philistine mocks the living God and taunts his people and makes light of his power and vaunts himself and his stone idols as superior to the living and true God. David will not abide that. That's why David fought. That's why his face was red with indignation. Not for his own honor, but for the glory of God, whom Goliath was taunting. And as we look at David in this chapter, it's worth our asking, is that the reason why my blood boils? Does my face turn red? Is my ire most often raised when someone is insulting me? Or because they have the audacity to insult the living God? Answer that question honestly now. Don't most of us have to say that on one hand, we are far too often hot and bothered by personal affronts. And on the other hand, we are often far too callous concerning our culture's insults of the God of the armies of Israel. Can we really sit through movies and television and music in which God's name is constantly blasphemed and his church is dressed up, as it were, in a clown suit? Can we sit through that and not become disgusted and walk out? If an employee in the movie theater were to defame you the way God is so often belittled on the screen in front of you, you would file a complaint and you'd be red in the face as you left the theater. But we pay money to listen to people insult our God, just like Goliath. The same question needs to be asked in much more real-world, up-close and personal situations, too. Is your heart sensitive to the rampant misuse of God's name in your workplace? Some of you say, I don't notice that God's name is misused in my workplace. Hopefully that's because it's not. But in many cases, it's because we just don't even notice it. We're so used to people using God's name as a curse word, using God's name as an expression of surprise that we don't even notice it. Are we sensitive to that? I'm not as sensitive as I should be. Are we as sensitive to the devaluing of God in school textbooks? Do we grieve when God is the butt of so many jokes in American culture, sometimes even jokes from the pulpit? As I look at David and his 
blood boiling at Goliath's taunts of the living God, I'm rebuked. And I have to confess, I'm far too easily angered when I'm personally insulted and far too laid back many times when the God of the armies of Israel is taunted and mocked all around me. Now, the New Testament solution to that, of course, is not to slay the person that's doing the taunting, nor even to insult them in return. That's where we often fall foul, isn't it? You're going to taunt God, so I'm going to taunt you. That's not the New Testament solution, and I want you to remember that well. But though our outward response to the taunting of God and the blaspheming of God may be much different than David's was, our inward sense of righteous indignation should be just the same. Our zeal for the name and the glory of God should be the same. David went to battle for the glory of God. David risked his reputation with his snarky brothers. David risked his safety. David risked his very life's blood because God was being insulted. He did it for the sake of the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. He was willing to be insulted. He was willing to be thought a fool by this giant for the sake of the name of the Lord. And the question for me that hits me so hard and that convicts me so much, even as I studied this weekend, is am I willing to take those kinds of risks? Am I willing to endure those kinds of insults for the sake of that same name? And are you? Now, your coworkers may not be defaming God's name, but are they praising it? And isn't it worth whatever risks you must take to tell them of the Savior so that they might begin praising it? Or at home and in your own sphere, aren't the sacrifices that you must make of time and money to serve the church or to do good to your neighbors or to teach the Bible to your children, aren't the costs to you in time and money and sometimes frustration worth it so that the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, might be praised more greatly in the people around you? And what about the nations where myriads of people praise the names of the Hindu gods, praise the names of Allah, praise the names of their ancestors, none of which names can lift a finger to save them. Does that bother us? Like David, some of us need to stand for God there, among the uncircumcised, so to speak, enduring whatever insults may be thrown at us, even being cursed, verse 43, in the name of their gods, but armed, not with five smooth stones, but with a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And aiming not to bring their heads home as trophies, but to win their hearts home to Jesus and their lips to his praise. Someone needs to do that in Benghazi, Libya in these days. Incensed as we may rightly be over what was done to our flag and our ambassador and our name, a far greater travesty in Libya and the reason for all the bloodshed this week is that the people there do not know or praise the only name that matters in this world. Not our name, but the name of Jesus. And what a worthy risk it would be for some modern-day David to go to them in the name of the Lord of hosts, for some Christian to take to them the good news and the good name of Jesus 
into those riotous streets and stand up boldly for the Lord, come what may. See, the world teaches us to promote our own names, doesn't it? The culture around us teaches us to be incensed when our own names are insulted, teaches us to go to battle for our own interests. And our own sinful natures go right along with that quite willingly, don't they? But in this famous day's events, David has taught us that the only name that really matters, the only name to fight for, the only name to take risks for, the only name to suffer for is the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel. And so like David, though outwardly our actions may be different, our blood ought to pump most vigorously for the sake of that name. Our indignation ought to be fueled only for the glory of God. Our biggest risks ought to be taken for the fame of God. And if we're insulted by people, it ought not to be because of our own foolishness or sin, but because we've taken a stand for the name and the glory of God, like David. This battle is not about David, and it's not about Goliath. It's not really about Israel, and it's not about the Philistines. This battle is over the name and the glory of God. And so are the battles in our own world today. Now, in the second place, I want you to notice that this battle was not only about the name and glory of God, but it was also a battle that was about the power of God. Listen to verse 45 again. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now that phrase, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, seems to have a double meaning. We were just saying that David came to Goliath in the name of the Lord in that he was taking a stand on God's behalf. He was doing battle for God's name, which Goliath had insulted. But when we read David's statement about God's name in its entirety, we also realize that his coming to the battle line in the name of the Lord meant not only that David was fighting for God's name, but also that David was fighting in God's name. In the strength of God's name. That's what the contrast teaches us in verse 45. Goliath was fighting David with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. David's weapons, however, David's strength, however, was in the name of the Lord. God was his shield, God was his spear, God was his javelin. David reiterates this in the next two verses, verses 46 and 47. This day, he says to Goliath, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you and I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. I don't need the weapons that you have, Goliath. My weapon is the power of God. That's what David is saying. That's the most obvious lesson, I think, from this passage. 
That David fought not in David's strength and not in Goliath's strength and not in the strength of sword or javelin or spear, but in the name of the Lord. There's strength, there is power in the name of God. And God can win victories without David even using his tiny little stones, can't he? This is a battle about the power of God. So, as we said at the beginning, David did not win this battle and David should not be admired because he was feisty or clever or courageous. He may have been some or all of those things. I think he was, but they weren't the reason why he won the battle. Just think of the David and Goliath situations you know. We like to root for the underdog, but they always lose, don't they? Ohio U doesn't beat Ohio State no matter how spunky they are, and David doesn't defeat Goliath no matter how courageous he is. David didn't win because of David. David won because he came in the name of the Lord. David had seen how God had delivered him, teenager that he was, from bears and lions, and that was what made him so courageous and so bold before Goliath. He was fighting, not in his own strength, but in the name of the Lord. He slung that stone, not with his own accuracy alone, but in the name of the Lord. The stone stone sunk in, not because of David's great strength, but because of God's great strength. That was David's explanation of what happened that day. I came to the battle, not with worldly weapons, not with worldly strength, but in the name of the Lord. And notice, David said that before he killed Goliath, not just after. It's one thing to give God credit for some victory in our lives after he's done it, right? But David was so bold as to tell Goliath ahead of time, what he was going to do in God's name. He didn't just walk by sight, but he walked by faith. And oh, if we only had David's faith. If we only really believed, if I only really believed in my daily life that there is all power in the name of the Lord. If I really understood just how tiny Goliath is in comparison with God, I would probably be a lot more likely to risk my neck like David. Standing up for the name of the Lord. And if we only understood just how little worldly weapons really avail, if God's strength is not behind them, we'd be a lot less fretful when we don't have them in our arsenal. Some of us are fretful about standing up for the Lord because we don't think we have the tools to do it. And this story, I think, dissuades us from thinking that way. Now, it's true. Some of you know, and you know this accurately, that you can't speak as fluently as you'd like to speak. You can't speak as fluently as someone else. And so sometimes you're scared off from speaking for Jesus at work or in your family because you don't think you can say it quite well. But look at David with his five little stones and God's strength behind them. And rethink what's really necessary for you to be courageous for God. Do you need the javelin strength of eloquence for the gospel message to pierce that friend's heart? Or do you just need God? You may feel in another area that you don't know all the answers to the hard questions that sometimes unbelievers may ask you. 
And so you're afraid to engage them in conversations about God for fear that they will stump you and that it will be worse off than if you'd not said anything. You don't have the right equipment in order to engage them in this conversation. But look at David going into this battle, unable to carry Saul's sophisticated equipment. Not able to take it with him, but just to go with what he could handle, and yet God was with him just the same, without the armor. And he can do the same for you, unsophisticated though you may feel. You may stand up for Jesus sometime, like David did here, and have all of your boss's wrath aimed against you for doing it. Or the time may come in this country where standing up for Jesus means that you have the government's laws written against you. Or standing up for Jesus, for many of us, may mean that we have all of our family's years of traditions piled up on the other side of the debate. And so you may feel, when you stand up for Jesus, sometimes like you're staring Goliath in the face with his teeth bared and his spear the size of a weaver's beam ready to pierce you right through the heart. And all you have is your little Bible in your hand, like five pitiful little stones. But the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, David said in verse 47. The battle is the Lord's, not yours. Now, God may use swords and spears. He may use Saul's armor. He may use many other human advantages or tools to win his victory as he did with David's smooth stones and his slingshot. But God is not constrained to use those things. He doesn't need them. And when he does use them, the strength is not in the javelin or the sword or the spear or the armor or the apologetic witness that you can give. The strength is in the name of the Lord of hosts. Isn't that what David said? He didn't say, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin. Bahaha, I'm going to show you how silly you are. I come to you with five smooth stones and I'm going to still beat you. It wasn't even about the stones, was it? It wasn't about the slingshot. It was about the Lord. I come to you in the name of the Lord. That's the only weapon I need. And as I said off the top, that's really the most obvious lesson in this passage. Not the courage of David, not the moxie of the underdog, but the power of Almighty God with those who will stand for him. We saw the same thing in Daniel 3 last week, didn't we? Those who honor me I will honor. Those who honor me, I'll be with them in the fiery furnace. Those who honor me, I will take that little bitty stone and I will make it fly straight and fast and I will bring down Goliath if you will stand with me. If God is with you, you will do valiantly no matter how small you may be. So, take your little stones that seem so insignificant and start slinging them. For God's sake, speak to that aunt of yours about Jesus. Start that Bible study at the office cafeteria. Engage that neighbor in a gospel conversation. Begin gathering your family for nightly devotions, even if the kids pitch a fit against it. Stand up for the name of God when it's blasphemed. Sign up for the mission field, inadequate as you may feel. If you will stand with the Lord... Even with your tiny little stones, you may be surprised how far and how straight they will fly by the power of God. So we've said two things so far. When you stand for the name and the glory of God, 
your small efforts will be reinforced by the power of God. And now in the third place, let us say that this battle provides us, most importantly, a portrait of the Son of God. This is a battle about the name and the glory of God. It's a battle about the power of God. And it is a portrait of the Son of God. We begin a new series today. I haven't told you that, but this is the first sermon in a new series, and it's really a continuation of an old series. About three years ago, we undertook a series of sermons that we called Gospel Portraits. We looked at several Old Testament passages that give particular insight into what we call the good news, the gospel. Several Old Testament events that mirror and foreshadow the coming of the Savior. His death on our behalf, his resurrection on the third day, and his call that all should believe in his name and be saved. So, for instance, we considered Genesis 22, the ram in the thicket. It was offered up as a sacrifice in place of young Isaac so that he might live through the death of another, just as we may live because Jesus, like that ram, was willingly caught up in the thicket of God's justice and died in our place. Or we looked at the serpent hung up on a pole in Numbers 21 for all to see so that whoever would look at that serpent in faith would be healed of the sickness that was plaguing the sons of Israel. And we saw in John 3 that Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that we could look to Him and be healed of our disease of sin. We looked at the story of Jonah, and Mark looked at it with us again on Wednesday night. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and then rising again as a sign so that Nineveh would believe. Just like Jesus was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and rose again as a sign so that we would believe. Those Old Testament events didn't fall out the way they fell out by accident. God designed them to provide for us portraits of the gospel he wanted his people to recognize the messiah when he came and so he painted the events of old testament history to provide as it were a pre-prepared mural of the life of jesus so that all along through the old testament you can look at the stories and say aha i see jesus there and so over the next weeks we're going to look at several more of the scenes in that mural and first samuel 17 is the first of them David's actions in this chapter give us a marvelous foreshadowing, a marvelous portrait of Jesus. How so? Well, listen one more time to that verse we've been zeroing in on, verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. may not appear obvious yet, but I want you to notice from that verse, what we've seen all through this chapter, that there are just two men in this battle. You come to me, David said to Goliath, and I come to you. Just two men engaged in the battle. And that sounds strange to our ears, doesn't it? But occasionally, this is how battles were fought in ancient times. Instead of the two armies engaging, one side would have their champion, as Goliath is called in this chapter, And the other side would have their champion. And the two champions would leave the ranks of their armies and walk down into the valley and do hand-to-hand combat, man-on-man, winner-take-all. 
Winner's army taking all. And that's the arrangement, of course, that Goliath suggested in chapters, or in verses 7 and 8. He stood, verse 8, and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine? And you, servants of Saul, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. One man on either side is going to represent all of his people. And so into that arrangement steps David, one man, to carry the fate of all of his people. And David, as one man, saves every last one of his people. Does that sound familiar to you? One man standing as the representative of all of his people with the entirety of their fate resting on his shoulders and that one man winning the day against all odds? Isn't that precisely the story of Jesus? When there was no one else who could walk down into the valley of the shadow of death and face our great and final enemy, death itself, when all of us were in peril with no champion to deliver us and no way, even if we mustered all of our strength, that we could save ourselves, Jesus, like David in this chapter, left the safety of his father's home and made his way down to the battlefield and said to the king, verse 32, your servant will go. And he did go, like David, and rescued us all. That's why this story is here in the pages of Scripture. And that's why Goliath suggested this one-to-one, man-on-man battle of champions. Even that, God was controlling because God wanted us to have a picture of just how amazing it is that Jesus took the whole fate of the entirety of his people onto his own two shoulders and rescued them all by himself. Like David, verse 28, Jesus' brothers criticized him for it. Like David in verse 43, his enemies cursed him for it. But David, like our champion, was undeterred. Champion in chapter 17, for his reward, our champion Jesus was given the king's daughter as his bride. You see it? The portrait of Jesus here in chapter 17. We must learn to read the Old Testament looking for these kinds of pictures. They're everywhere if we have eyes to see. And when we read this chapter in particular, we begin to understand why blind Bartimaeus, so many years after these events, cried out to Jesus and called him the son of David. Jesus, the young prince, the beloved son, came to the battlefield of this world to be our champion and to win our freedom like David all by himself. But I want you to notice before we finish that it is on the actual battlefield that the path of these two great biblical champions diverge. For while David won his people's freedom by fighting and killing In their place, Jesus won his people's freedom by dying in their place. 
David won his people's victory with five smooth stones. Jesus won his people's victory with five jagged wounds. One of them received by just the sword of spear that David never had to face. For David to single-handedly rescue his people surely required great zeal and courage. But for the Son of God to leave his father's home and to step out onto the filthy battlefield of this world and to endure the mocking and to submit himself to the brutality of so many Roman Goliaths and to die the death that our sins deserve required not only great courage and zeal, but great love for his people. And should we not love our champion in return? Should our souls, like that of Jonathan in chapter 18, verse 1, not be knit to this champion who died for us? Should we not sing the praises of our champion like the women sang David's praises in chapter 18, verse 7? I hope that you love this great champion of God's people. I hope you love him. Now, it should have been Saul out there fighting Goliath that day, shouldn't it? It should have been David and his brothers and all the men of Israel together, not just one man. It should have been them all facing death that day. All the men of Israel ought to have had to risk their lives that day on the battlefield. But one man stood in their place. One man, verse 43, bearing shame and scoffing rude in their place as a champion stood. And those who had any heart at all loved that one man for it. And by the same token, all of us should have had to go down to the battle as well, shouldn't we? All of us should have been hanging on that cross. It should have been me, and it should have been each of you. That's what our sins deserve before a holy God. But one man went and stood in our place, bearing shame and scoffing rude in our place condemned he stood and sealed our pardon with his blood and how much more than anyone ever loved David ought you and I to love our great champion